left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. If you have a significant equity in your house, a lot of people are like, yes, I'm rich. I'm like, are you? It's doing nothing and it's at risk of the market. How can we remove that from the asset and distribute that equity over multiple assets that can grow or even generate additional cash flow for you? Very excited to have Travis Smith, founder and CEO of TribeVest, which is an online platform that facilitates small group investing. Travis formed his first tribe with his brothers to try to grow their wealth through alternative investments. Helping others invest together became a passion of Travis's, and TribeVest was born. And now he has hundreds of tribes investing millions of dollars into all types of assets and businesses. Travis, can you share some of the ways TribeVest helps build wealth for passive investors? I go back to when my brothers and I were first thinking about forming our, our first investment tribe. Prior to that, we invested in our 401ks, and that's all we knew. But everybody we knew that was wealthy was invested in real estate or owned a business. And by us coming together to form an investor tribe, pulling our capital, put us in a position to invest in real estate, to start a business. TribeVest gives people the ability to come together and do more than they would or could on their own. Can you tell us how listeners can get in touch with you? Absolutely. They can come to TribeVest.com. I love the origins of how TribeVest started with you and your brothers. Thanks for that, Travis. If you want to learn more about TribeVest, visit them at www.tribevest.com slash partners slash LF and get your first $50 deposited in your tribe's bank account. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is Whitney Sewell from LifeBridge Capital. You are listening to Passive Investing from Left Field. Today, I'm very pleased to have Whitney Hutton with me. She is a real estate investor and personal finance trainer working to help others on their path towards financial independence. She's the founder of Ash Wealth and the Investor Accelerator Program, which we'll talk about today. They help investors develop a plan to reach their real estate and financial goals. Today, Whitney's a partner in over $378 million of real estate assets, including 3,000 residential units and over 1,400 self-storage units. So she does it all. Uh, She's been a guest on multiple podcasts, including the Bigger Pockets. Uh, It's episode 340, if you want to listen to that. We're really excited to have her on the show. Uh, Whitney, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Jim. So happy to be here. So the way I like to start is just to find out your journey. Where did you come from? How did you get here as far as your, I guess, your real estate journey more specifically, how you got from into real estate and then how you transitioned to doing some of the uh, single family home stuff you do. And now you're into syndication. So if you can kind of just give us your journey, that would be a great place to start. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, I started off in 2002 completely by accident. I was an accidental landlord. I purchased a property with a significant other and about, I, you know, take it for whatever it's worth, probably did everything wrong, didn't have the right agreements in place, whatever. About a month later, the relationship fell apart and I had a house and everything was in my name. Uh, I was sweating bullets a little bit and it was in deep need of repair. I mean, every square inch of that place. I mean, I was telling somebody the other day, I had, you know, it was originally built in the 60s. And when I started taking down soffits, there was all these psychedelic flowers painted all over the walls. So, and all over the wood flooring, it was crazy. So I, you know, at that point in time, there was no YouTube. I went to Home Depot and bought the Home Depot one, two, two, three, like repair book and started making all these repairs on the house, stuffed it full of roommates. And 11 months, you know, I had to hire out a couple of things. I goofed my plumbing. I realized I'm not that great at drywall. So I did have to hire some contractors to help me finish things off. Um, and then 11 months later, I sold the property, which is probably my number one mistake. Um, but at that point in time, I had made, I think, $52,000 and then realized I hadn't been paying a dime for the mortgage the whole entire time. Matter, I'd been make, matter of fact, I'd been making money. I was like, wow, how many more of these can I do? Because I was making more than I was getting paid in my day job. Right. So that was my first project. I thought it was the coolest thing since sliced bread and moved on to my second project and violated every immutable law of real estate on the second project. I bought a mountain home with 19 steps from the driveway up to the balcony, which are the entrance in, you know, a winter place. So you can just imagine how icy that gets in the wintertime. And, you know, I didn't lose out on that property. Real estate, you know, at the end of the day can be somewhat forgiving um, if you structure it, if you pay attention to your structure. But long story short, that property, I think we were talking before the show, that's the property the bus fell through the roof about 24 hours after closing. Sweating yeah. bullets. Am I about to get sued or not? And so, you know, for context, it was built on the side of a hill and my neighbor had a tenant living in a school bus on our property that was parked right above my retaining wall. And that had to get moved in order to repair the retaining wall. But when the bus got moved back into place after closing, this bomb-proof retaining wall signed off by every city engineer in the whole county, it seems like, collapsed and the bus went into the roof of the property. So (laughs) anyways, that's not where my journey ends, but that's like kind of a cool side story. But got out from underneath that property, did a few more live and flips and house hacks from there. Um, Met my husband and he joined in my Antex. But we realized we were really good at making equity on projects, but we... It, it took us forever to realize this is not what's going to get us to financial freedom or little alone financial independence. We didn't have cash flow coming in. We couldn't unlock those golden handcuffs for ourselves. And that's when we got into rental real estate. It took us several years and like a few head slaps like that to figure right. out, oh, rentals. That's what we need to be. Cash flow. Wow. That's amazing. So we scaled about, we scaled 30 properties. We started off here in Colorado and then we eventually transitioned to Indianapolis and Kansas City out of state because we could get better cash flow than we could here in Colorado and um, scaled about 30 properties. Majority of those um, doing what we is now known as the Burr method, you know, buying a property that needs to be fixed up, repairing it, renting it, then, you know, putting a stream of income on it, then taking it to the bank, refinancing out all of our capital or as much as we can, and then recycling the same buckets of capital 
we did 30 of those projects and then several flips actually to continue to replenish and build our equity position. And then my husband, I, we had enough cash flow coming in. I could walk away from my day job. And I'm like, we had a small child at home. I'm like, this is amazing. This is the power of real estate. This is what everybody talks about. And then my husband says, I want that. Oh, we didn't account for that in the plan. (laughs) Right. Quick math in my head meant, oh, we've got to get another like 40 or 50 properties because he had all the benefits. And I'm like, we got to go a different way. We've got to go into multifamily. We've got to get an element scale behind our build here, our acceleration. And so that's when we um, transitioned into limited partner investing initially. And then in the past two and a half, three years, I've been actually on the active side. Um, but I will tell you, I am so passionate about you know helping people understand, first of all, how to get into real estate in general, then how to scale. And then once you kind of have like your initial needs met with the financial independence piece, like how can we like scale this and get an amazing return on your time? And that's where you and I met and we started talking about syndication because we're both so passionate about it. Yeah, well, that, that's a great story. I mean, it, it has a little bit of everything, meaning the bus crashes into your house and that would stop a lot of people, right? Okay, I'm done with real estate after a bus crashed through my roof. Uh, but you kept going to 30 burrs, which is great, and some flips. And then then you got into syndication. So talk a little bit about when you say you want to help people get into real estate, are you talking, where, where do they enter? Because I think everyone enters a different way. I'm similar to you as we entered in as accidental landlords. And we did a flip. I joke, it made hundreds of dollars. So over nine months, that is not a very good return. So we didn't do that again. We did some single family. We did uh, some other stuff until we kind of settled into syndication. So where's a good entry point? I think it depends on what where you're at in your equity build. And for somebody who says, you know, maybe has like $20,000 and maybe three months of expenses set aside or is very like early on in their build phase, their accumulation phase, I, I would direct them maybe towards single family. So they can start building up assets and cash flow that it's under their control. They can actually reposition the single family homes. You know, right now, asset prices are soaring. There's very little indication that that's going to collapse in the near future. So that's, a, you know, for somebody who doesn't have much getting started, I think that's an amazing place to get started. You, you can take advantage of the five wealth centers of real estate and really start controlling that asset, improving out the model for yourself. And it's it's attainable. You can get a loan pretty readily for that. For somebody who, you know, maybe is a has a high paying job, you know, making you know, can qualify as a credit investor or even just has like, you know, significant nest egg laying around a five hundred thousand or a million dollars or more, the game can be a little bit different from for them, right? Because they have now they can actually take that half million or a million or two million dollars or more and invest it in other people's deal and allow them to do the work, right? They can leverage other people's networks, ability to analyze the market, ability to find the deal, credit, lending other investor money to access larger projects. But that that initial investor that's just starting off with and only has like $20,000 in their pocket or 50 or maybe even 100, I generally would love to see them build up their own assets first before transitioning into syndications. Yeah, and I like the way you said that because different people start at different places, right? And and it's all a journey and you kind of end up where you need to be eventually. And that's that's what happened to me. I think that's what's happened to a lot of people is you start somewhere 
And I think now that there's a lot more resources, people like you that can help people get into it. But you mentioned a couple of terms I want to make sure everyone understands. One was equity build and the other was the the five wealth centers. Can you talk about that? Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you know, equity build, uh, you know, we can, you know, we can think about it is like, what is your net worth? Right. So a lot of people, their net worth is tied up in their their primary residence, their 401ks, TSPs, 40s, rebies, you know, the retirement accounts for the average American. That's where their net worth is tied up. We can, you know, maybe interchangeably call that savings, but not all of that is created equal. If you have a significant equity in your house, a lot of people are like, yes, I'm rich. I'm like, are you like it's doing nothing and it's at risk of the, at the market. How can we remove that from the asset and distribute that equity over multiple assets that can grow or even, you know, generate additional cash flow for you? So we can go down that rabbit hole all we want. But to also define the other terms that I was talking about are the five wealth centers of real estate. That what makes real estate so unique is that you can cash flows. You know, if you buy, depending on how you buy it, you, it has the possibility of cash flowing, it has the possibility of appreciating. What profit can you generate from leverage? Because you can put a loan on the asset. You can't put a loan on your, the normal person can't go to the stock market and buy the stock market with a loan. Then you've got the tenant pay down, the tenant paying down the loan for you. And then depreciation or the tax benefits on real estate. Yeah, that's great. I've never heard, I've heard those before, but I haven't heard them in that way. The five wealth centers. I think that's a great way to look at it because you're right. There's so many different ways to make money in real estate. And if you can find an asset to provide you all five of those at once, you're really going to be ahead of the game. And it's not as market dependent as if you're just relying on one of those or two of those, right? And like you said, if you're doing traditional 401k or stock market investing, you're not, you're not getting all five of those for sure. You might be getting one, maybe. Right. If I can challenge lucky. you that on all day long if I want to do. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I completely agree with that. When you're talking about people getting to single family homes to start, are you talking about doing a turnkey approach or are you talking about true Burr investing, which I guess sometimes you can, those can intersect, but usually the Burr method, which I think was buy, would you say a rehab, rent, refinance, refinance and repeat, right? So how do you do that? especially if you're in Colorado and you're doing it in Indianapolis and Kansas City? Well, to back it up, I mean, so the central question here is like, which one do I do? It depends. It depends on capital position. It also depends. But most importantly, what is your return on your time? Where to acquire an asset, you have to have the knowledge, time, and hustle, okay? The expertise behind that in order to acquire the asset. And if you have a hunger for all three of those things, then I'd say, Let's do birth. Like if you have the capital and you have the time and you have the hustle, let's totally go after a birth. You know, if that's what you want to do. Um, a lot of people that I work with though are, you know, have families. They're working a full-time job and it, they want to do a birth, but at the end of the day, they realize that we're a little bit more difficult. It's not as passive as one would think. Now I approach that the setting up a birth business a little bit different than you know, most people approach it. I don't have people do that for themselves. I coach them on how to set up their real estate business as a business and immediately start putting together a team and hiring out a team to do this all for them. So it does take a lot of upfront work. It is work to get to to build a business initially, but they're not going out like combing the MLS themselves or talking to wholesalers themselves. You know, they're going to piece together the right team in the right market. Um, in order to get this done for themselves. 
So is that what you do through Ash Wealth? Yes. So can yeah. you can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because that is such an interesting strategy because most of the people in left field investors are W-2 employees. A lot of them are trying to financial independence or make the W-2 optional. But we avoid sometimes investing in single family homes or those kind of things because it is not as passive as some turnkey providers would advertise. So I think putting together a team and going at it that way is a really unique strategy. So can you just tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. Well, so when you build a business, you have to, one, understand your goals. So we spend a lot of time there. That you know, Where is your current mindset? Where is your current goals? And are you in alignment with those? We talked a little bit about that, about the time, money, and expertise, your hustle. You know, if we determine that those things check off and you're in alignment and that doing a burst strategy would work for you. Now we start identifying the market and, you know, I take people through a process to identify the metropolitan service area they should be investing in, but also the secondary markets and how to analyze those markets. And then once we have those markets identified, we get into, okay, how do we now set up the deal flow? And there's some really cool tricks that you can use to access rock stars in the market and find them. I mean, we all know, like, you know, there's turnkey providers, there's realtors, there's property managers, there's networking, but there's a few other ways to kind of scrape the data within a market and find those rock star people that can actually be integral to your business. And then from there, you become the manager of those people, the manager of the system. And there's a whole entire system and I help people set up and put together. Now, here's the thing. I don't discourage anybody from investing passively if they can do that. I do think active or and, and what I do is still pr- is considered passive real estate, honestly. Um, but it is more active. You and I both agree to that. Like we've had single family homes, like they're anything but like completely yeah. passive. They are not mailbox money. But there are certain advantages to having a even a small portfolio within your control, like 10, 15, 20 units. The largest advantage to that in complement with, you know, complementing syndicated investing is that now you might, depending on the size of your portfolio, the amount of income you're bringing in, now you have the potential of setting yourself up to become a real estate professional and taking advantage of that side of the tax code. It does mean that work, you know, you'd have to walk away from the W-2 or organize your W-2 work in such a way that you can still qualify as a real estate professional. And I'm not a tax guru here, but you know, there's definitely some some ways to do that. But the cool thing is, is that one of the most powerful things about syndication investing, syndicated investing, is the cost segregation analysis. We're accelerating that depreciation to the early years of the investment. I would gather a lot of people here, a lot of people are listening that are still working in W-2, they get capped. They can't utilize all those losses. They can't access them. And so those losses are suspending and carrying forward. What if you could set up your small portfolio or a small, medium-sized portfolio to allow you to unlock those losses and really reduce your number one bill, which is your tax bill? Yeah, I think that's amazing. And I just want to clarify a few things because I've been getting some feedback that sometimes we get a little technical Ah! without explanation. So real estate professional. Yeah. So that's basically, we don't need to get into the weeds, but You have to work in active real estate for a certain number of hours. And when you do, all of that depreciation, which is paper loss, it's not actual loss, it's just paper loss, you can apply that to W-2 income, your spouse's W-2. And if you don't have that real estate professional status, which means you're not active 
to a certain number of hours and the certain you know types of duties, that passive loss, the depreciation can only be offset by passive gains on real estate, those type of things. Is that an accurate? Did I miss anything on that explanation? That is a great explanation. I think there is one other piece to that is that in the tax code, you know, depending on where the adjusted gross income is for the family, they phase out of being able to use any of those losses. So there is kind of a sliding scale in there. Um, but, you know, if we're looking at the two ends on the spectrum, you, you describe those very accurately. Okay. And one, one thing that we've been talking about in left field investors, because we do have people, I think it, it's like a spectrum, you know, people who maybe you start in single family homes, then I don't know if I should use the term graduate, but you kind of just move on to syndications, depending on how passive you want to be, because they, the spectrum is single family homes are more passive than flipping, but they're less passive than syndications, right? So where you are on that spectrum matters. But in our group, we've been talking a lot about the lazy 1031 exchange, which is basically using the depreciation from passive investments that you get the cost segregation that you talked about to offset your gains from maybe selling your single family home portfolio. So yep. <laughs> is that something that you do or do you, you do the regular 1031? I've done both. I would say that this is how I look at it. I love the 1031 exchange. You know, we're kind of in this, you know, depending on when you're listening to this episode, we're kind of in this nebulous time period. Like, is it, how is it going to look here in the next year? We don't know. But the one fallacy that I think of, that I have about the 1031 exchange is I've seen people buy real estate. They put the place their money, they sell the real estate, they place it with a qualified intermediary. And now they're like, oh my gosh, I have to buy a piece of property. And then they get themselves into a transaction they really shouldn't be in. It doesn't meet their investing needs, but they have told themselves the story that this is better than like consuming the gains and finding another way to offset it with other depreciative losses. So I've done both. I've done a 1031 exchange, but I, I'm very, I'm very cautious when I go into a 1031 exchange. If I can't get the exact piece of property that I want, I will not do it because I have a backup strategy with my syndicated real estate um, and other investments that, you know, where I have 100% depreciation to offset those losses. I love the way that you put that, the lazy man's 1031. Yeah. So. That's my, my accountant. When I was selling a bunch of my active properties, first thing was, you know, sometimes you just have to say, okay, you made a bunch of money, pay the taxes on it, instead of trying to force yourself into a new investment, which a lot of times the 1031 exchange, which again, the 1031 just means you can sell a property. And as long as you buy a similar property that's maybe larger, then you don't have to pay the tax. You can defer the tax. So instead of jumping through all those hoops, either just pay the tax rather than force yourself into an investment you might not want, or find another way. And that, that was his lazy 1031 was his way of explaining, hey, you know, you can still do this with using these um, passive syndications, which is what I want to get into next. You mentioned early in this conversation about how to scale. Is there a way to, you know, for someone who has, you know, either a bucket of money they want to allocate or they have every year they have some extra W-2 income they want to put into syndications. Is there a way to scale that like you would with your single family homes? The key thing here, if you're going to scale through syndications, is being able to reinvest back into your business. And that goes whether you're doing single family, burrs, syndication, it doesn't matter. But how how much 
the velocity is going to be driven by how much you can add back into that bucket to reinvest, whether it's from your W-2 job or actually not consuming the distributions and putting that back into reinvestment. At some point in time, and it doesn't take very long, you're pretty diligent about this, you know, you continue to reinvest back to the, into the business, you'll have, an again, that accumulation phase. You'll have enough money accumulated you know, earning seven, eight, 10%, you know, what, I mean, hopefully, you know, if you can find a 10% preferred return, that's amazing. But, you know, right. earning that initial like preferred return distribution, that's what we're going for, right? With syndicated invest- investing in order to kind of unlock the golden handcuffs. But now you still have the cash flow coming in. There, if you're investing correctly with syndicated investments, you'd be, you know, balanced out with some sort of appreciative growth as well. You're in an investment that, you know, hopefully is taking advantage of the tax code, either through tax cost segregation, depreciation, or 1031 exchanges at the end itself. And so it's using leverage. Now you may or may not get the tenant paid down, you know, with syndicated investing. You know, oftentimes, you know, I don't get the tenant paid down because the loan is interest only, but you can still hit multiple of those wealth centers with syndicated investing, but it does require you to either continue to drive money in from like your W-2 job or reinvest back in your distributions that you're getting or both in order to scale and grow. And so you talked about accumulation and velocity. Can you explain what you mean by, I mean, accumulation is just, you know, it's kind of the snowball effect, right? It just keeps on growing the more you invest. But what about the velocity? What is that and how does that help? Yeah, so not consuming the gains or the distribution. What I see oftentimes is, you know, and this is, you know, across the board with business owners in general, is that they want to start driving cash flow right now through their syndicated or their single family for syndicated investment. And they want to immediately go start taking those vacations. Like, great, I brought in $4,000 this year, or you made one investment, I get $4,000, I'm going to buy a car, I'm going to go on a vacation. When you do that, and you're not reinvesting that back into the business, you have less dollars in order to, to, to grow at an exponential rate. You know, I wish I had like a little whiteboard here, but it's <laughs> <laughs> just watching me wave my pen around right now. I'm trying, you know, right. trying to draw out an exponential curve. What you need is time. You need dollars going into a system in time. Those things will compound into velocity. The more dollars you can put into the system, you know, with real estate, because you're getting paid so many different ways, you know, you're, you, you have shortened your time horizon. And so it really doesn't take that long. You know, if you're investing in the stock market, you might need to, you know, to continue to invest in that portfolio for 20, 30, 40 years before you finally see that exponential hockey curve growth. With real estate, that could be 10. Right. It's not just your distribute. You can take your distributions and reinvest them. You can take your capital appreciation when a deal goes full cycle and, and reinvest that. Or if you get a capital back, if they do a refinance, you can use that. And then you're investing, you know, the same dollar in multiple places. And, and that's where you really start accelerating, right? Yeah. I love that. The group that I currently work with, like we will do like refinances and supplemental loans and return, you know, monies back to the investor. But we never put that into our underwriting. Because we don't, we don't know what the market's going to be like in two or three years. But it is something that we're all aiming to doing. I mean, it, and it's essentially what you're doing with a burr, right? You're re, reutilizing the same bucket of capital over and over again to generate a return. That's how I built my entire single family portfolio. I mean, everybody's like, aren't you getting just 8% return? I'm like, no, I'm 
not quite infinite, but like I have very little of my own capital in that investment because I've recycled it over and over and over again. But that that refinance supplemental loan can be just so powerful in helping you accelerate as long as you put it back into the business. Hey, Love Builders. This is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. I love the way that you call it the business and that you're talking to uh, syndication investors as business owners, because that's just super powerful, right? To think of it as a business rather than, hey, I'm just an investor. No, I'm a business owner and my business is to allocate my capital and, and grow it for me and my family towards financial independence. So I really like that take on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, go back to Robert Kiyosaki's Cashflow Quadrant. I mean, you want to be on the right side of the quadrant, either owning a business or being an investor. And either way, you're either investing in your own business or somebody else's business. That is your business as an investor is to identify other businesses to invest into. That's where the tax code rewards us. So I want to switch a little bit. You are a passive investor, but you're also a code GP or a GP on some deals. Can you kind of talk about what what the difference is between just being a limited partner, which is the passive investor on an LP, and being a GP, which is the general partner, which means you're you're running the show? and managing the asset and all that. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two? Yeah, definitely. Well, a, lot, a large portion of this goes boils back to leverage, right? The general partner, you're going back to your single family and investing almost. Like, you know, the general partner is, they have to build their, their mindset, their skills, and their network to be able to find a deal in a particular market with a particular strategy. Once they find the deal, now they, you know, their network is a series of realtors, property managers, lending. Now they got to acquire the lending. They have to bring the credit and then potentially raise other investor money alongside your, the limited partner's money in order to access the deal. So they're doing all that work. Now the limited partner, now they get a return. They get in some cases a pretty sizable return. Here's the thing. As a limited partner, my biggest return is my return on my time. I don't have to be the most brilliant person in the room, the most networked person in the room, or have all the underwriting skills or build out the team that has that. I can still do what I do best, I'm most passionate about on a daily basis. And I can invest, access other people's time, knowledge, and expertise, credit, and lending in order to participate in these larger deals. And not to mention other investors' money to access these deals. It's in an abundance mentality that you have to have as a limited partner investor is, yeah, I could, you know, you have $50,000. Sure, you could buy your own and control it, or you could see the potential in owning a 351 unit in Houston, Texas, in an amazing growth area and partnering with other investors in order to access that. I love the return on time because that is really when I was doing my single family home investing, even though they're turnkey properties. The thing that drove me crazy was managing the property manager. And I, you know, fired a couple and went with new ones and I still had trouble finding the right 
property manager. So when I switch to syndications, now I have a, an asset manager who is a professional. And this is all they do is figure out how to hire the right people, find the right people, manage the asset, and they hire a property manager and manage that person or group. So it just the return on time is my returns, the financial returns are not that much different on my active and my passive. The extra is the return on time, right? I don't have to do all of this. I just have to vet the sponsor ahead of time, invest. And after I've given them the money, I just have to read some reports and do some follow-ups. So speaking of vetting the sponsor, can you tell us from the, again, you have a perspective as a passive investor on the LP side and you have the perspective of a GP. Can you tell us some hints or some things that you would do or the things that you do to screen a sponsor? So initially, I would start back, I would take a step back and identify what your goals are. Like, what do you need in your investing strategy? Do you need cash flow? Do you need appreciation? What is your time horizon? When do you need those? Also, are you looking for monthly cash flow or monthly distributions, quarterly distributions? So I would really kind of sit and entertain some of those questions first. What is it that you need and you want in your investing strategy? And then start your search there. Most of the time, I see people transition into multifamily syndicated investing because we all have a roof over our head and it's a tangible transition, whether we've owned property before or not. We've all lived in a property before. And so um, that seems to be kind of a next logical step. But I would partner, you know, start, you know, interviewing operators. Now, you know, definitely left field, you know, there's a, you know, a nice operator list here um, to start with, but start talking to operators and getting to know them. What is their strategy? What is their investment thesis? Not all operators are the same. Some operators love cash flow. Some operators like cash flow and appreciation. Some operators do development deals. Others do opportunity zones. Those are all different strategies. Also, where are they located? What markets are they in? Are they in the Southwest or Southeast? What kind of resonates with you there? And then what kind of, what is their business track record? How long have they been in business in real estate or owned other businesses and ran other businesses? Are they doing this full time? I get pretty challenged because I invest passively as well as, you know, actively, but I like looking for operators that are doing this full time. I'm handing over all that time that I've traded for money and I want it well taken care of. So that's one of my criteria that I have to my list. And then I just go through and I want to understand their successes, their track records, their returns, their exits, how successful they've been on their exits. And just because somebody had like a bump in the road on a deal doesn't, I want to know how they handled it. I'm not looking for perfection. I want to know, I actually appreciate operators that have demonstrated that they've gone full cycle on the deals, maybe met a challenge, told me about it up front and told me how they, how they kind of turned that lemon into lemonade. I like that. Not looking for perfection. I think, I think that's, that's important, right? Because you make mistakes. That's how you learn. So if you're dealing with someone who's never made a mistake, you're kind of hoping they never do, but you don't know how they're going to react to it when they do, because that seems to be inevitable. So when you're looking at a sponsor and evaluating them, is there any a hard no? If you find out something, are you just going to be like, nope, moving on to the next one? Do you have any of those? Because I'm not, I'm not sure I do, but I'm always looking for what's the, because you know, there's so many sponsors out there. How do you sift through them? I don't have any real hard no's. I do have like some red flag questions. One, are they doing real estate full-time? That's a question for me. 
because it takes a lot to do active investing properly. Do they have a succession plan in the business? And that's oftentimes, that's one that when I talk to an operator, they kind of go, I have a partner. I'm like, well, okay, what happens if both of you and your partner are on the same plane and it goes down? What happens? (laughs) So those are understanding what the succession plan is. Then it's just like a matter of like, you know, going through the track record. And I'm looking for honesty and transparency. I have this gut check feeling when I'm talking with somebody. I want somebody that understands that they are taking care of my money. We're partners. I'm going to take another stab at answering that question. And I'm going to put my GP hat on. Because I think that's one thing that limited partners, you know, oftentimes fail to understand is that they're not an expense to the property, but they're partners. So I want a general partner who's going to treat me as a partner, meaning they're going to continue to be transparent um, with their communications with me and with everything that's going on in that property. And simultaneously, I want to be with a, a limited partner who understands that we're partners and they're just treating me as such because we're all in it to, to make money together. No, I think, I think that's great. So moving on from the, the sponsor and putting back your, uh, your LP hat, your passive investing hat, when you're looking at a deal, somebody else's deal to invest in, and I guess maybe even your own deals, are there a couple of deal metrics that you look at and evaluate? Like, do you have your, your favorite kind of things that you, you quickly look at? Okay, from evaluating this deal, I'm going to look at A, B, and C just to, just to do a check on it. Yeah. So kind of at the top, I'm looking for, for me personally, I'm looking for like B to A minus properties. I'm looking for a value add strategy for a variety of reasons. But one, you know, that, that usually means that I can hit three net operating income levers of growth. So I'm looking for properties that are a little bit, you know, dated maybe where I can get away with a cosmetic rehab on the property or the business plan is to get or go through a cosmetic rehab on the property and move the property to market rents. Also, is there opportunity on the profit and loss statement to capture some operational efficiencies, maybe rework of vendor contracts, tax abatements? You know, what are, you know, what is the business plan in order to take advantage of that sort of thing? And then what is the opportunity to add additional streams of income to the asset? You know, can there be like washer and dryer rentals put into the property, broadband internet, stuff like that? If we're talking self-storage, is there an opportunity to add branding to the project? Any way that I can increase that net operating income? Now, why am I talking and driving that point home so much? It's because that kind of, you know, indicates what kind of return I'm looking for. I'm looking for a definitely a 7 to 9% preferred return. And then, you know, maybe on the back end, you know, like a 15 to 22% IRR um, and an equity multiple of a 2x in five years. So now that's all kind of a sliding scale. It depends on what market you're going into. What is the cap rate of that market? So those are, those are kind of like the high, high level returns, but I, that's all driven by the business plan. I think it's unaligned for me to go into every project expecting a, you know, a, a luxury property, stabilized A-class property, get an 8% preferred return, 80-20 split on the back end and a 2x multiple in three years. This is not going to happen. Like I have to have like a better understanding of what the business plan is. That's a, a, a smart approach is to enter into everything looking for, this is what I'm looking for. And I'm going to find an investment that matches it rather than to sit and wait for emails to come in and then say, oh, here's, you know, here's five deals that came in and just kind of evaluate in that way. But you have a strategy, you're focused, you have goals. And I think that's what we all should do with our business, right? Because you, you call this your business. So we should set goals. And, and that's kind of where I made mistakes in the beginning was 
I was going to be full-time passive investor, but the first few deals I did, they were all appreciation type deals, forced equity, grow fast, but they weren't sending me cash flow. And part of that was because I needed the lazy 1031 high depreciation deals. But once I kind of figured that out, I'm like, okay, no, I'm going to be now a cash flow investor. And that's a different thing. And so I, I like that you think of the strategy and find investments that fit that rather than do what I do. And most people probably do is all these investments come at you and you just try to figure out, okay, which ones look good to me. You know, the mm-hmm. strategy is the key. Definitely. Definitely. And it goes back to understanding what it is that you need. So yes, that's the challenge is to figure that out. Right. And that's also part of the journey. When I was flipping houses, I'm in a completely different place now that we're, we're just doing all passive. And understanding that is a big part of the battle, I think. Yeah. And the journey. Other thing that I would really impart here, we talk about returns, we talk about numbers, we talk about metrics, and we've touched on this, but just to drive the point home, your success as a limited partner investor is based off your team and your team is the operator. That is the business. You're investing in already operating business. So really getting to know and love and trust that operator, that is probably one of the number one success drivers for anybody that's going to be a full-time passive investor. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree with that. So last question I I ask is, uh, what's a great podcast that you like that you listen to? Oh my gosh, Um, I have so many. I actually have always stuck with uh, Get Rich Education, Keith Weinhold. So he touches on so many different things from single family investing, multifamily, syndication, cacao farms, coffee. It's not the podcast for somebody who gets distracted, <laughs> but right. it's, it's amazing. And you know what? He's stayed primarily a single family, one to four unit investor through this entire time. Yeah. And, he, and he's done a great job, but he also, he touches on some of the other stuff in his, I mean, his investing is pretty focused, but his podcast is a little bit broader than that, which is nice, I think. Yeah, but there is a theme. You know, when you listen to it, it's all about what are those? There's so many different types of real estate that can hit on all five of those wealth generators of real estate. That's, that is where he stays focused on. Absolutely. So thank you very much. This has been fantastic. If our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, you can find me at ashwealth.com and just email me at ashwealthco at gmail.com. Excellent. Well, again, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this conversation and uh, we'll have to do it again sometime soon. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jim. Glad to be here. Thank you. Wow. There was a lot of good stuff in that episode. I really enjoyed talking to Whitney. Some of the things that really stuck out to me, she talked about the five wealth centers of real estate, which, you know, you get cash flow, you have leverage, the tenant pay down, which I thought was interesting. She also mentioned that you might miss out on some of that if you're in a syndication and they have a mortgage with interest only. I hadn't thought of that. So that's an interesting um, thing that you're missing out in syndications. It makes up for it in other ways, as she talked about, because you get some time freedom and the cost of your time is something you need to evaluate in a syndication. Then she goes more of the wealth centers, there's inflation, decreasing your debt, and finally the depreciation benefits you get on your tax return. So I really like talking about those wealth centers. And I know she recommended the Get Rich Education podcast. I may focus a lot on those on those five different returns, I think is the way they they phrase it, of real estate. And then she constantly talks about treating your investing, your passive investing, your active investing as a business. And I think that is critically important because it gives you a whole different focus if you're thinking, I'm going to run my business rather than just saying, hey, I'm going to 
invest in this syndication or that syndication. You have a business and it's an investing business in real estate syndications. If you treat it like that, I believe that you'll have a lot more success because you'll have a lot more focus. And then finally, one of the other things that really hit me is you, know, you need one of three things to be successful in the real estate business. And if you have more than the one of the three, you know, that just increases your chance of success, but you need capital or time or hustle. And you need to figure out which of those you have, how many of those you have, and how you can optimize those for the benefit of the business that you're running, which is an investment business. So if you have capital, but no time and no hustle, that's where you're going strictly passive. If you have time, but no capital, no hustle, well, I guess if you don't have hustle, you might be out of it anyways. But the point is that if you have at least one of those three, and preferably some capital or some hustle, you are well on your way and you just need to put it in action and treat your investing as a business and you are on your way. So I enjoyed talking to Whitney and I will certainly follow up with her and get her on the podcast again. See you next time. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.